What's up, church family? Good to see you once again. Uh, I am so grateful to be your pastor and be a part of this church. This is a special time in this community. God is moving so strongly. We've had a few great weeks of church, so much so that we had to get away from a series that we were in. If some of us didn't know, we were actually in a series called Family Values. And our family values are six main things we do as a church. We pray together, we eat together, we worship together, we serve together, we grow together. What was the other one? And we pray together. I thought I said pray already, but I didn't. And we've been in this series for weeks now, and it's been so great. And if you remember, before we kind of took a break for a few weeks with the guest speaker and, and, and the other things we were discussing to really bring us together as a church, we were going through the tabernacle. And I, if you haven't had a chance to see all those sermons about we worship together and going through the tabernacle, um, just go th- to YouTube, go to Oasis LA um, uh, on, on YouTube. And whenever you see some Old Testament looking title, like the brazen altar, that was part of the series. Just like go there. And like whenever you see a weird title, that's a piece of furniture in the tabernacle. And the final piece of furniture that I did not do that will complete our We Worship Together part of the Family Values series is the Ark of the Covenant, where the priest, um, just to recap, they would obviously the people would come to the gate and they enter the courts with, uh, uh, you know, at the gate with thanksgiving and the courts with praise. And then the altar is where they would be, the animal would be sacrificed, their sins would be forgiven. And then the priest would wash his hands and the laver and they would enter into the tabernacle, this portable tent that hosted God's presence. And the whole point of this is I believe that um, the mistake that we, we can make as a church is that we think that God remains in the Sunday service temple, but, but we are ordained by God to make him portable. Christ lives in us and we need to carry God, the glory of God, our relationship with God, the light of God into the spaces we are called to. And so as this priest would wash their hands, that means that they were clean and ready to go into the tabernacle and there'd be the candlestick, which I preached on, um, the table of, of showbread, which I, I, I preached on. And then as they progressed behind the veil, there was the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the glory of God, the full manifest presence of the glory of God. And this glory um, was so important because it, it's, it was tangible. It wasn't just this faith knowledge. This was a glory that could be seen. So the Bible says that this glory cloud or a pillar of fire that came from the tabernacle would guide them. It, was, it made God so tangible. So even if you were struggling to believe in God, the glory of God was tangible to those who had a lot of faith and those who were struggling with their faith. And I believe that God has called the church of God to host the glory of God. One of the things about love when it comes to God is God's love really has no rules. Um, God loves you just as you are. And I think if we're not careful, when we talk about Jesus, and many of us have heard this, like when Jesus is walking around, we, go, we say things like, man, we just need to be more like Jesus. Jesus just loved people. Jesus was the glory of God in the flesh. And so love should have no rules. We should love people unconditionally. But if we want glory, which we're going to learn is the full manifest goodness of God in our life, love has no rules, glory does. Write that down really quick. Love has no rules. God will love you just as you are, but glory will not show up in any atmosphere or any environment. So I want to be loved by God, but if I want to live the good life God has for me, the glory of God must be being revealed 
in nearly everything I do. And so this Ark of the Covenant contained the glory of the Lord. And I just want to give you a little bit about the Ark of the Covenant that's really important for you to understand is that it was this piece of furniture that represented the glory of God and it was overlaid with gold. Beautiful. And two, uh, there would be a statue of a cherubim, which is the angel of God and another cherubim with their wings covering their faces because they weren't allowed to look at God, this thing in the middle. And the, and the, the, the glory of God was in the middle. And the priest would take some of the blood sacrificed from the animal and he would splash blood on something that was in the middle of these two cherubim wings called the mercy seat. And when the blood of, of the sacrifice hit the mercy seat, the Bible says that the glory would be released. The goodness and the presence of God, tangible to all, would be released. And inside this Ark of the Covenant were a few things that represented the rebellion of the people. Uh, manna was in there. And why was manna in there? This is, ah, man, this is, this, this makes, I feel so strong about this. Manna was supernatural provision from the heavens. And how cool would it be to go outside and see manna on the ground and you were hungry? We'd go, oh my gosh, God sent manna. But manna was inside the Ark of the Covenant as a representation of the rebellion of the people. So sometimes God is providing for you because you're in rebellion and you think it's a sign of God's goodness, which it is, but it's a sign of God's goodness in spite of your rebellion, not because of your obedience. And I think if we're not careful, we look at if God is providing, that means we're doing something right. No, God will provide manna to rebellious people. Not every blessing in your life is because of, sometimes it's in spite of. The other thing was the 10 commandments were in the Ark of the Covenant and Aaron's staff, the first priest there ever was, um, they came, uh, they said something bad about Aaron's leader and every man, excuse me, Aaron, God's leader, Aaron, and every man in Israel would have a staff. They always walked around. They were all shepherds. They would have a staff. And so there was this part of the, uh, uh, the Bible where they were complaining about their, their, their leader that God had pointed over them. And they told all the men, lay all of your staffs on the ground. And the one who's staffs grows fruit or plants in the morning, um, that's the one who I've called to lead. And so obviously in the morning, every other man's staff was bare and Aaron's staff had fruit on it. And later we would see in the Bible that we don't judge by what we think, we judge by the fruit. And so at that moment, that staff that had leaves on it, which there's no way it could grow leaves in the morning, was evidence of the rebellion of the people. So I want you to just fathom this. Encased in the glory of God, encased and overlaid in the gold, were the law, because God, God's people rebelled against God's ways. It was manna, where, which represents their rebellion when they wanted to go back to Egypt, because they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to sin because the food was good, and God gave them manna. So they're, they're, the rebellion for the first thing was God, they were rebelling against God's way. And I think we can do that a lot where we want God's presence, but we don't want his ways. So that was the 10 commandments. They rebelled against um, um, uh, their past. They wanted to go back to something they were doing before. And one of the biggest signs of rebellion is when you're uncertain about what God's gonna do in your future, you resort to your old ways. So that was the manna. They resorted to the slavery that they were in Egypt. 
And the other thing they rebelled against is against an ordained leader that God had put over them. Now, you have to understand that God puts people in authority over us all the time, and the enemy's been very calculated for people in your life to abuse authority, so you cannot be under authority because you've been so abused by authority. But I want to challenge you, if you've never been under authority, you cannot have authority, and every gift of God that God wants to give to you that's out in the world, you're going to need authority to have it, and if you've never been under authority, you can't have any. You have to go and take dominion. And so these three things of rebellion were encased in the glory of the Lord. So what does that mean? That the full manifest presence of God always covers the rebellion of the people. And so it was not anyone's job to to stop doing those things. It was God's responsibility to cover it. And once they knew it was covered, then they could stop. It's a powerful thing of what the glory of the Lord does. And so we're going to pick up on a passage of scripture because I could go into all the nuances and of what the tabernacle, uh, what the Ark of the Covenant was made out of and all that stuff. But I really feel like I just want to make it simple because a Bible study on the Ark of the Covenant is not going to help you. I don't need to do a Bible study on the piece of furniture. What we want to talk about is what that piece of furniture contained, and that is the glory of the Lord. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 12 through 22, we're going to read about a story about a shady priest and, and, and the way he was leading the people and the way that Israel was behaving cost people the glory of the Lord. It says, a man from the tribe of Benjamin ran from the battlefield and arrived at Shiloh later that day. He had torn his clothes and put dust on his head to show his grief. Eli, who was the shady priest, was waiting beside the road to hear the news of the battle for his heart trembled for the safety of the ark of God. Let's just stop here for a second. In order for them to win, they would take the ark of God into battle. They would take the glory of the Lord into battle and the glory of the Lord would help them win the battle. But they thought because God was with them that they didn't have to obey God. So now when they realized that the glory of the, God, of, of the Lord would help them win, they stopped obeying God and then would get in fights thinking that because God was with them, even though they weren't with God, that God would um, uh, give them victory. And Eli, by the way, I want you to understand this. Eli had two sons in this war. And the Bible doesn't say he was concerned about his sons. He was concerned about the presence. You need to know this. Any real leader will be both concerned about what God is doing in the church and his sons and daughters who were attending every single week. He was only concerned about what God was happening. His two sons are in battle. Watch this. When the messenger arrived and told what happened, an outcry resounded throughout the town. What is all the noise about, Eli asked. The messenger rushed over Eli, who was 98 years old and blind. He said to Eli, I have just come from the battlefield. I was there this very day. What happened, my son? Eli demanded. Israel has been defeated by the Philistines, the messenger replied. The people have been slaughtered, and your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were also killed and the ark of God has been captured. When the messenger mentioned what happened to the ark of God, Eli fell backward from his seat beside the gate. He broke his neck and died, for he was old and overweight. He had been Israel's judge for 40 years. Isn't that interesting? He, heard, he just heard his two sons were dead. But when he heard the glory of the Lord was gone, he fell backwards and broke his neck. Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near her time of delivery. When she heard that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth. She died in childbirth, but before she passed away, the midwives tried to encourage her. Don't be afraid, they said. 
you have a baby boy, but she did not answer or pay attention to them. She, chained, she named the child Ichabod, which means where is the glory? Oh, wow. For she said Israel's glory is gone. She named him this because the ark of God had been captured and because her father-in-law and husband were dead. Then she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Can you imagine? Hey, what's your name? Ichabod. What does that mean? The glory of the Lord is gone. One of the things that I think that we do a lot as a church is we try to give our churches names. Oasis Church, and there's a lot of great names for churches. But I feel like in some churches, the right name for the church is Ichabod. A church of departed glory. Because it's not that God, and and let me explain it to you this way because I want you to understand. There is a presence of God where God in his character is omnipresent. So God is everywhere. The glory of God is not just God being everywhere. It's that everyone can tell that God is there in such a way they're forced to acknowledge it. So God is everywhere. God is in the person's life that you think is sinning the most. He's in a drug house right now. He's in a strip club. He's in a church. But it's his omnipresence that puts him everywhere. Where he is worshiped and honored and revered and acknowledged and obeyed, he begins to manifest himself in a way that everyone is forced to feel the effects of his presence, which is glory. So what glory is to God, heat is to fire. Where there is fire, there is always heat. No one has ever said, man, this fire is cold. It's not possible. Wherever God's presence is being acknowledged and leaned into, the resulting is is glory. And so what she was saying is the glory has departed Israel and she gave someone an identity that means that they didn't have any glory. Golly. Man, I hope we are never a church and we never have a life with departed glory. Years later... Thousands of years later, actually, in Luke chapter one, a man by uh, the name of Zechariah was operating in the temple and the Ark of the Covenant was not there. And he was in there serving and doing a bunch of stuff. And the Ark of the Covenant hadn't been there for 400 years. And he's still going through the motions. We cannot have a life or a church that does not have the glory of God. What is glory? And the Old Testament word for glory is kavod, which means weight or substance or a good thing. Matter of fact, when God was asked by Moses in Exodus 33, show me your glory, God said this, I will let all of my goodness pass before you. So when Moses asked God to reveal his glory, Moses was asking, I want to see how good you are. Glory is the fullness. He said, I will let all of my goodness pass before you. But interesting enough, because Moses was not yet redeemed and Moses was a good guy, but because Christ had not came, died, and Moses didn't have the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that God had to hide Moses from his glory and that God couldn't look in his face. So God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock. When we are not right 
and we don't, we're not filled with the Holy Spirit, God has to hide us from some of the best things in our life because the Bible says God told Moses, you cannot see my face and live. So there are certain things that God has for you that would kill you if you cannot handle glory. It's important we understand that, that it means weight or substance or the full goodness of God. We know it means something good because even in Israel to this day, when they want to say well done or good job, they say kol hakavod, which means COVID, weight or substance, or you did something good. It is a powerful, powerful word. In the New Testament, it means, uh, the, the Greek word is doxa or, or brightness. So there's a substance to our life, a weight to our life. Even in Daniel chapter four, there was this king who had a bunch of money, man. This dude was balling out of control. He was rich. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. And the Bible says his kingdom expanded all across Babylon and he was just living the dream. And he stood on the balcony and basically took glory for himself. He says, it is by my own power that I did all of this. The Bible says in Daniel 4 that Nebuchadnezzar went crazy. And here's what was crazy about this story is that Daniel had a vision about Nebuchadnezzar and he said that God did something to Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, the Lord has weighed you and has found you to be wanting. The Lord doesn't measure us, he weighs us. So I know you wanna do big things for God. I know you have big dreams. People will tell you to dream big, but the Lord would suggest that you dream heavy, that the glory of the Lord, dreaming heavy means that I wanna do things that reveal God is real to the world. I don't wanna do things that reveal that I'm good, especially in a city where there's so much creativity and everybody wants to be in entertainment. I know few entertainers that it is their goal to show how good God is. And if they achieve that success, they're gonna go crazy. Why? Why do we know so many successful people with mental health challenges? It's because they're not doing it to reveal how good God is. They're doing it to reveal how good they are. And so there is space for us to be wildly successful and wildly blessed. But when we wanna get the credit and not point people to God, then what we're doing has no kavod, no weight, no substance. God will measure, not measure you, he will weigh you. He wants to know that what you have has substance. You ever been on a date and that person ain't got no substance? It's like, they just on their phone the whole time and they're talking about how many people are following them on Instagram. And there's nothing wrong with having a million followers on Instagram, but this has no substance. You ever see somebody do something and you discern, this has no substance. You're not really doing this for the right reason. Some of us can walk in spaces and be like, this is off, why? Because in the spirit, we're weighing it. It looks big, big production, lights everywhere. And we go to church and you're like, man, this, 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 why, why there's all this, the worship leader can sing. It's a good message, but you're feeling in the spirit that there's no weight to it. Or we see, you know, people on set or, or, or making music or, or preaching or whatever it is. And it's like, we go on a date and it's like, there's no weight to your life. Glory makes things heavy, not big, heavy. And it's so important that we understand that. Here's what I will say. The divine presence of God is so tangible, everybody feels its weight or its worth or its value. The glory of God is God revealing his goodness in your life. And if we make it our goal to reveal how good we are, not how good God is, then there will be departed glory. We don't have an Ark of the Covenant in our church, but I believe that we have had moments even recently 
where the glory has departed. And if we're going to be, live in the fullness of what God has for us, we have to worship God in a way where his glory remains and rests and dwell. So how do we create an atmosphere of God's glory? Thing number one, you ready to write this down? We must, I mean must, put a greater emphasis on what Christ has done. We must stop focusing on what we have done or what culture is doing. We must put a greater emphasis on what Christ has done. We have to stop focusing on what we have done, good or bad. Because some of you are so focused on what you have done and you've done a really good thing. And God says, nope, focus on what Christ has done. Some of you have done some really horrible things recently and you're too focused on it, focused on what Christ has done. Why is this important? Because the Ark of the Covenant, the only reason the glory, the goodness of God was manifested to the people was because the priests splashed blood on the mercy seat. I wish I had time to get into it, but the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that the blood of Jesus has been splashed on the mercy seat in heaven. So then now the glory of God is revealed to all because the blood of Jesus is what satisfied the Ark of the Covenant in heaven so that you and I can approach God. We have to focus on that more, that Christ died. He, he shed his blood so that you and I could be forgiven. But so many times it's like, oh man, I, I messed up or I did something really awesome. And we live in good and bad. And we decide what's good and what's bad. Remember the first sin is eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Humans deciding what's good and bad and trying to figure it out. When it is God who decides that, we must put more emphasis on what Christ has done. Think about this. What Christ has done for us through shedding his blood on the cross, but what Christ has done in us through giving us the Holy Spirit. If there is more emphasis on the cross and the Holy Spirit, everything in your life is going to reflect God's glory. More emphasis on the cross and more emphasis on the Holy Spirit. When is the last time, and obviously social media, I talk about it a lot because that's where I see what Christians are talking about. Have you seen even the word cross recently on a, holy, on a social media post? right? It's like, oh, we need to do this for God. Have you seen the word cross? You see the Holy Spirit, but you don't have the Holy Spirit without the cross. Come on. We, we need the cross. The cross is no joke. Yeah. And so, and we got to get the cross right. Mm-hmm. You ever see those chains and some faith they have the chains and Jesus is on the cross still? He's not on the cross. He's in you. Yeah. So that's an incompleted chain. He's not on it. He's in you. So focusing more on what Christ has done is the blood of Jesus was shed so I can be forgiven. The blood, the the spirit of Jesus is in me so I can live. This is so powerful. If we want glory, which, which the Ark of the Covenant was radiating the glory of God, the light of God and the goodness of God was radiating out of the Ark of the Covenant when the blood hit it. We have to focus on the fact that Jesus shed his blood for me. He shed his blood for me. And I think talking about the blood of Jesus, we've tried to be so relevant in church. We don't talk about the blood of Jesus anymore because it makes people feel uncomfortable. And we want to make sure that people feel comfortable in that, that, that we're not using words that are, that are not comfortable. No, the, this, this should make you uncomfortable, that there was so much sin in me that somebody needed to die for it. That should make you uncomfortable. When we focus on it, we realize we are forgiven and we are loved, but also that we have the Holy Spirit. Colossians 1 verse 27 says, for God wanted him to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too, the people who are not from Israel. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing 
in his glory. So when you wake up in the morning, remind yourself that Christ lives in you. Like, do you know, it sounds kind of weird, but do you know that Christ lives in you? If Christ, I am, and maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're not a mansion for Christ, but you at least a condo. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You, you, you like some of y'all new believers, you a studio, kitchen, bathroom. You, you, you can smell what's cooking and what's happening in the bathroom. You just got a little studio for Jesus. Jesus is like just in the studio, cramped up, like just living your house for Jesus, $800 a month. But at least he's there. Here's what's crazy. Jesus does not like living in the mansion more than he likes living in the condo. But he designed it for, 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 for our hearts to be so expansive that Christ is not cramped. Whenever you don't forgive, you cramp Christ. Whenever you sin, you cramp. He doesn't, he doesn't leave, but he's cramped. He's surrounded by different things. And here's what's crazy. The Bible says that Christ lives in you, so your body is a home for Christ. So for example, this is a temptation that I have. Whenever someone lives somewhere, we tend to be a little bit more messy than when someone's visiting. So this is religion to me. Religion is what we all get caught up in where Christ is visiting us on Sundays. So we clean up our life and we go to church. But if he lives there, we can come, sometimes be a little messy. And we can understand that we don't, we, don't, we don't make sure that Christ is not cramped because we know that God loves us, but it also says we can grieve God. When you understand that your body is a home for Christ, it might be a condo, might be a mansion, but God lives there. And this gives you assurance that you will share in his glory. What does that mean? That God is trying to do things that he wants to share with you. The enemy thinks that the only things you can ever get are what you work for. But if Christ lives in me, then there's something God wants to do that he's sharing. The complete blessed life that is affected by glory is simply, is simply this. I have things in my life that I have worked for and I have things in my life that Christ has shared with me and they all bring glory to God. Do you understand? If all you have in your life, if you keep saying this, man, I don't know how this happened, only God, only God, you're not living a full blessed life because there's some things in your life that you should be working for. If all you have in your life is what you work for, if you keep saying, oh, I have so much work to do, Oh, what in your life is God shared with you? That the only reason you have it is because Christ is in you and God's like, I want that. You know, so many dreams are not what you want. It's what God wants. But because you're in your flesh, you think it's you and you think you got to go work for it. But Christ is in you saying, hey, let's do that. I want that. And you're like, yeah, I want that. No, that wasn't you. That was me. I'm going to share that with you. If you just obey and let me lead you, I will lead you to it. It's a powerful thing. I believe that if we focus on what Christ has done, we can create an atmosphere of glory. Other thing we need to do is we really got a hunger and thirst for righteousness according to God's word. Not to get it right for righteousness. There's a big difference between thirsting to get it right because thirsting to get it right produces self-righteousness so that when you get it right, you're the one who's righteous. Righteousness in the Bible is a free gift. When you thirst and hunger for righteousness, it's not meaning that you have a desire to do things better. 
you have a desire to encounter a God, God in a way that he would give you his righteousness and teach you how to live it out. Righteousness, the Bible says, is a free gift from God. We have to thirst for it. And the Bible says this, this was crazy about righteousness. It doesn't say anyone who works on it will be righteous. You ever met a person, they go, man, I got a lot to work on. No, you don't. You got a lot to believe. This will preach, man. I'm, this is a bind. I, like, some of y'all in this room, I got so much I need to work on. And God's like, no, you have so much you need to believe. Most of what you're working on, I will do if you just believe me. Just hunger and thirst for it. But here's the crazy thing. Like, you know, sometimes I'm hungry, I chew gum. Because I'm trying to like make sure I'm not hungry. Like, I'm trying to, like, some of y'all, everything you do is just chewing gum. Like, you're trying to work on yourself, you're just chewing gum. No, let that hunger kick in. And then do something that is so freaking off of what you wanted to do that it produces the hunger. It's almost like, don't be afraid of being hungry and don't not believe that God is not going to fill you. It says we hunger and we thirst for, for, for righteousness. One of the things that um, I think about this is I think about sometimes we want to be so much like Jesus, we forget that Jesus was the word. John 1, 14 says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Why? Why do they see the glory of God? Because the word became flesh. What does that mean? The literal word of God was manifest, manifested itself through Jesus' humanity. And so glory immediately appeared. So it's not we need to see the word and obey. No, 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 no. We don't need to see the word and obey. That's religion. The word became flesh. It wasn't a transaction. It was a transformation. So you see the difference? It wasn't Jesus obeyed all the word and so that we saw his glory. No, no, no. Jesus became the word. A transaction turned into a transformation. So let's say, for example, you read the Bible and you're talking about sexuality and you're sleeping with somebody and you know, you read the Bible, don't go, well, the Bible says that I should not be doing this, so let me stop. No, it's let me encounter God in a way that he would transform me into a person that would obey his word. Let me hunger for it first. Before I can even quit, God, I hunger and thirst for righteousness because when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, the promise of God is that he will fill it. So many times I haven't hungered to stop doing certain things in my life because I'm afraid I'm gonna keep doing them. And God says, if I just keep my hunger and thirst for righteousness alive, he promises to fill it. If I keep saying I need to work on this, there's no promise attached to that. God wants to make the word come fle become flesh in your life. Why is this important? Because the character of God in our lives is how the glory of God can be revealed in our finances, in our marriage. And here's what I will say to you. If you are watching this right now and someone has bothered you, upset you, frustrated you, I almost said pissed you off and I don't know if I can say that. Whatever the thing is, I just said it. <laughs> then, then you need to up your love and up your character. If you are operating in a character that would reveal the glory of the Lord, it's impossible for people to match that. You can never, ever repay God for what he's done for you. Yeah. If we are living out character properly, people should be failing us. Wow. Like, we should not, it should be impossible 
One of the things that I felt was the biggest thing I understood that really helped me be a better husband in my marriage is that I was tr- I'm trying to live this life where Christina cannot pay me back for what I give. I'm trying to be this person where, where it's not I do this and then you. No, what I do. And if she does something good, I got to up it. If she does something bad, I got to up it. Like that's what it is. And this type of character radiates the glory of God. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, the son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command or his word. When you get to a point where you, and and everything starts with love. Here's what I'm saying. When you get to the point where you receive God's love, God's word goes from suggestions to commands in your heart. But where there's no love, then it's just a suggestion. Where there's love, suggestions become commands. The, so, so the third thing we need to do, I believe to create an atmosphere of glory, is we must be more grieved by the sin in ourselves than the sin of others. Great. One of the things that was really disappointing on the internet this week, and I was thinking about that, is just how this is just this housing place to call out the sin of other people. You know, there was this incident, which obviously wasn't great, right? Um, and, you know, there was this incident where two, two black girls, um, and, and I, I don't want to know the intention, they seemed to be shunned by a Sesame Street character. And the Sesame Street character waved hi to, uh, like, two white kids and seemed to brush off two black kids. And it was like this thing of racism. It was all over the internet. And I'm thinking, man, this company has done nothing but... But they have diverse characters. They had kids in wheelchair. They had black puppets. I mean, the first black puppet I ever saw was on Sesame Street. I'm like, they got a brother puppet? Like, like they've done nothing but that one thing, and that's all we post about. Have you ever seen anyone post anything good about Sesame Street? Like, never. But the moment that Sesame Street makes a failure, a mistake, everybody wants to talk about it. We want to call it out. We don't call out good things. Nobody, I've never seen a post that says, man, shout out to Big Bird. He really got me through some tough times. Like, no, like nobody ever does that. Like, Yo, Oscar the Grouch used to come out that trash can and really help your boy. Like, like, Bert and Ernie, like, they, they was boys, man. If we could just have more friendships like Bert and Ernie had, and if we could just, well, no, you've never heard anything good about Sesame Street from any adult. I have never in my life. Matter of fact, if I was following an adult who was constantly talking about how awesome Sesame Street was, I'd be concerned. But now that they're talking about how bad Sesame Street is, adults are reposting. I don't understand this. What is in us that we are so excited when people mess up? You know why? Because when you call out something, I want you to write this down, and I don't even have this in my notes, but I feel like preaching. When insecure people accuse you of something, it's often a confession, not an accusation. They're insecure about who they are, so they get happy when you fail. I'm telling you right now, it, when people acute, when I see that, I'm like, oh, you don't know who you are because you're celebrating bad things. We're more grieved by what other people do than the sin in ourselves. Romans 3, verse 23 says, all have sinned. What is sin? Sin is not getting it wrong. Sin is not getting it wrong. Sin is not doing the wrong thing. Can I just explain this to you? Sin is not doing the opposite of the truth. The Bible says, for we all sin and we fall short of the glory of God. Sin in, in the Bible was an archery term. 
It was used by a referee who was watching an archery contest and the person was shooting an arrow. And if they missed the bullseye, because they didn't have video screens back then, the referee would be watching the bullseye. And if he missed the bullseye, the ref would yell back in those ancient times, sin, meaning you missed the mark. So the definition of sin is failing to do something you are trying to do. The definition of wickedness is not doing it because you're not trying. So sin and wickedness are two totally different things. Wickedness means you have no intentionality to do the right thing. You're doing the bad thing on purpose. Sin is falling short of the full goodness of God. So it's not receiving the full. So for example, when you sin, start to look at a mentality, not that I'm doing something wrong, but I'm falling short of all the good things that God has for me. And God in his grace moves the arrow calls you righteous, and then teaches you how to be accurate. So, so sin, not sinning, is, is accuracy. It is being accurate with how you love people, accurate about what God is doing and saying, accurate about what you get involved in, accurate about when should I have sex. It's being accurate. It's not being right and wrong. It's, it's increasing the accuracy because sin means to miss so what my job is as a pastor is not to make you wrong, make you, uh, make you go from wrong to right. The blood of Jesus moves you from wrong to right. The church is not supposed to call out sin. We're supposed to call out the blood that covers sin. It's Jesus who makes you right. It's not my job to tell you the truth that you become right. You're right before you walk out the truth. My job is to make you a more accurate believer. Does anybody be, want to be more accurate about what God is saying to them and their family? My job is to make you accurate. And the glory of the Lord makes Christians accurate. We don't miss. Man, there was games I've seen uh, Michael Jordan. He couldn't miss. He couldn't miss. I feel like people who encounter God's glory go, man, you're not missing. There's somebody in this room and I'm going to tell you specifically, you're going to a season where you ain't going to miss. And people are like, no, they're not. You're not going to miss. And you're, you're going to be scared because you're not missing. And you're like, you remember when you go through a season where you just, you just seem to miss? You, the first question is, what am I doing that I'm not missing so I can keep doing it? No. God's moving the arrow. You are missing. You're just moving the arrow. But because you're trying and you're doing it with the right motives, God keeps moving the arrow. It's like the way I see success in my life is I will shoot the arrow. I'm not perfect. I'll shoot the arrow and it doesn't hit the bullseye. And I feel like God moves it. And by the time I walk over there, I'm like, oh, I made it. <laughs> no, you didn't. That's the grace of God. You didn't know he moved the arrow. And sometimes he'll let you get that off. But grace and glory is telling everyone, the world, about the one who moves the arrow. I feel like preaching. Because if you go over there and you see that arrow in the bullseye and you finally get it right, and you tell everybody and you start doing archery lessons, it's, it's <laughs> oh my God, dude, should I, I, I don't want to say it. But like when I see people be successful at something and then try to teach classes on it, it's like, and you just got successful at it? No, 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 God moved your arrow. You suck. You're not an expert. Just tell people about the person. And I'm not saying you don't teach people your expertise, but before you teach people what you know, tell them about the person that moves the arrow. So when we see the world living in sin, we want to go, hey guys, you're sinning. Here's the truth. No, tell them about the person who moves the arrow. The Bible says we can become righteous by faith. 
And when we do that, we're not falling short of the glory of God, which again is the goodness, the weight of God. We want our lives to have substance. And this is what the Ark of the Covenant represented. The last thing I will say is that if we wanna see God's glory revealed, we must speak of God's goodness in challenging circumstances. I know, I know you're going through a tough season. I know life is hard, but I've seen people in situations people would pray to be in do nothing but complain. First Chronicles 16, 24 says, declare his glory among the nations. Declare his goodness, his marvelous works among all the peoples. It doesn't say, and do it when it's good. Nope, just do it. Declare his glory. God is so good. God is awesome. Yep, I'm struggling. I'm gonna be transparent. You don't have to, you can be honest, but let it begin with God is good and let it end with God is good. Make yourself a little glory sandwich. God is good. His goodness is in my life. My husband is tripping. My kids don't pay attention. I feel lonely. I feel inadequate. God is good. That is a glory sandwich where you can be honest in the middle, but God is the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. Everything begins and ends with the goodness of God. The goodness of God. Here is the responsibility of the church. If the Ark of the Covenant was behind the veil in the temple or the tabernacle. And the Bible says when Christ died, the veil was torn in two. The Bible says the moment that Christ took his last breath, the veil, the thing that kept people away from the glory of God was torn in two and the glory of the Lord was released to be in your life and my life. Isaiah 60 says this gives us a responsibility to do something in hard times where in verse one it says, arise Jerusalem or God's people. Let your light shine for all to see for the glory of the Lord rises to shine on you. One prophet named Rihanna said, shine bright like a diamond. I'm like, that's my worst Rihanna voice ever. I feel like she's like, she's a prophet. Let the Lord, glory of the Lord rise to shine. And some of you are saying, I'm trying to shine but it's so dark. Well, verse two says, darkness as black as night covers all the nations of the earth. We are in a season where darkness as black as night covers all the nations of the earth and God is asking you to shine. And if you focus on the dark situation, you won't shine. The dark situation helps you. When you go into a jeweler and you buy an expensive diamond, and I will close with this. When you go into a jeweler and you buy an expensive diamond, and they wanna show you how beautiful and bright the diamond is. They will typically take this diamond, shine a light on it, and put it on a black backdrop, usually a black piece of velvet. Do you see how good the diamond is when you contrast it with darkness? And some of you are in such a dark season, you think that there's something wrong, and you think that God is mad at you, and God is frustrated in you. And God is putting you in situations, in relationships, and in life that are just so dark. You're like, God, if I'm supposed to shine, well, he's taking his diamond, built by pressure, by the way, and pain, and he's putting it against the backdrop of darkness for all the world to see. If you want to radiate the glory of the Lord, the goodness of God, then you have to tell God you have permission, although he doesn't need it but it's a symbolic thing, to put me against whatever black backdrop, whatever dark backdrop you want, 
to give me an opportunity to radiate your glory, which is your goodness. No one cares about the goodness of God uh, 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 when, when, when things are perfect. It is the goodness of God, the glory of God that shines through believers held up against the backdrop of darkness that we can really know where God's glory is shining. And so I want you to thank God for your dark backdrop today because it's giving you an opportunity to radiate his goodness in every single space you are in. Friends, we are the Ark of the Covenant, the church. There's no piece of furniture. There's no building. There's nothing made with human hands. We are the Ark of the Covenant, God's church, God's people together. And we are called by God to shine the glory and the radiance and the character and the goodness of God in dark situations. Father, I thank you so much that that uh, someone listening right now, um, maybe they don't feel qualified. Maybe they feel like they are. Pastor Julian, I'm that condo, man. I'm the studio for Jesus. I'm struggling. God, you don't care about that. You, you live in believers. And the Bible says that it is the hope of glory that, that, that Christ would live in people. That's how we can hope for glory in our lives. And so God, for anybody that believes God's glory can only happen when you do something for them, God, your word says that God's glory can happen when you do something in them. May we allow you, Lord, to search our heart and, and, and remove and purge and prune the things that are not supposed to be there. And so that in your character, our lives would have weight, substance. We would do things that really matter. We pray for this type of glory to be revealed in our lives and in our church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love you so much. Can't wait to see you next week. Um, we're done with our We Worship Together series. That's amazing. And next week, we're going to be talking about We Grow Together. Make some noise. We Grow Together. It's going to be amazing. Love you so much. And I'll see you soon.